listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. I'm joined by my colleague, Paige Labermont. Paige, how are you doing today? Hey, Alex. Good. How are you? Great. Uh, Our guest today is Isaac Orr. Isaac is a policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment, where um, today we're going to be discussing comments that Isaac and some of his colleagues put together on the EPA's new carbon rules and their impact on electric reliability. Isaac, it's been a long time. You were like one of the first guests we ever had on Plugged In, and uh, it's been a couple of years, but uh, welcome back to the show. Yeah, you guys forgot I existed for some reason. Yeah, we, we got to have you on more often because uh, yeah. obviously we, we love your work here. Happy IR, to be so, here. Yeah. So yeah, so earlier this year, the EPA proposed new carbon pollution standards for coal and gas-fired power plants. Um, let's start uh, just by talking a little bit about what um, the EPA's rules uh, trying to achieve. Uh, what's the purpose of this new rule? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and Paige, feel free to jump in here anytime uh, because you also wrote comments on this. So you're a veteran of this uh, ongoing proceeding as well. Uh, so essentially, EPA is trying to reduce CO2 emissions from the electric generating sector. And what they are doing is they are issuing new regulations on new and existing coal and natural gas fired power plants in order to do that. So. Uh, the so that's under section 111d for existing rules, 111b for uh, for new facilities. Sorry, not rules, existing facilities. Uh, so the the coal regulations basically say a uh, coal plant owner needs to either retrofit that unit with um, carbon capture and sequestration equipment or retire it by 2050. And there are intermediate things that coal plant owners can do. Like if they only run their coal plant at a reduced amount, they can continue operating it through, you know, up to the 2030s. Uh, so there, there are some like gradations there in terms of how often or how frequently you can continue to use that facility. But essentially, you the writing's on the wall for the coal fleet unless they adopt carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, similar things are kind of being uh, proposed for natural gas facilities. So uh, existing natural gas fire power plants, if you're a combined cycle plant, are essentially EPA breaks it down into three broad categories of what gas plants need to do in order to comply with these regulations. Frequently used baseload plants, either need to adopt uh, carbon capture and sequestration or co-fire so-called green hydrogen, which is a magical form of hydrogen that is made with electrolysis and wind and solar electricity, as opposed to reformulating methane into like the most efficient form of creating hydrogen, right? Uh, so they have to do that by certain years, um, and the, the certain years are not on the tip of my tongue right now. So uh, if you if you know those, feel free to jump in. But Um, But if you're utilizing a plant less than 50% of the time, there are different standards, right? So uh, some some, uh, natural gas plants will not have to really add any sort of carbon capture or co-firing requirement if they are utilized less than 20% of the time. So essentially what EPA is doing is they're trying to have a workaround of what the Supreme Court said in West Virginia versus EPA. They are trying to regulate uh, CO2 emissions inside the fence line, right? Rather than you know the the broad transformation of the power grid that the Obama administration was trying to do uh, for the clean power plan. Uh, so that's what this is trying to um, to uh, effectuate here, right? But uh, 
critics of the rules have argued that, okay, well, you're technically trying to comply with, you know, inside the fence line, but ultimately what you're doing is you are trying to mandate technologies that have not been adequately demonstrated, that being carbon capture, sequestration, and green hydrogen. Uh, so you're effectively just trying to force coal and natural gas plants either off the grid entirely in the case of coal or into uh, solely acting as backup for wind and solar uh, in the case of natural gas. So, uh, you know, our modeling essentially looked at what EPA's assumptions were for what the grid of the future would look like in the 15 state region uh, of the mid-continent independent systems operator. It's 15 states, parts of all or parts of 15 states, basically it goes from Minnesota down to Mississippi. Um, so, uh, essentially, EPA believes that natural gas plants will be backup generators for wind and solar, and those resources will have to shoulder most of the, the load. And that's not a recipe for success. Yeah, so let's talk about the modeling, because uh, your guys' comments specifically uh, focus on some of the assumptions that they're making in 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 their models. Um, particularly, you identify three mistakes regarding uh, resource ad adequacy, reliability, and cost. And uh, your, your modeling basically says that uh, uh, because they're making these inappropriate assumptions, uh, you actually think that the implementation of this rule is going to lead to blackouts. So why don't you go through uh, the problems of the assumptions that they're making in their modeling, talk about that a little bit, and then we can get into what you guys uh, project in terms of actual costs, in terms of you guys come up with a figure called like a social cost of, of blackouts, which I thought was a... a, a clever way of getting people to realize the the severity of what uh what the implementation of this rule will be um so yeah if you could talk a little bit about the uh the assumptions that they're making in their modeling yeah sure isn't that cheeky social yeah. cost of blackouts <laughs> um definitely wanted it to be kind of a little knife twist there because you know we hear a lot of stuff about the social cost of carbon EPA justifies its rules based on externalities, but then their own modeling has this massive externality uh, that they're not looking at, which is a blackout, right? Like people die. You, you look at the lost productivity, spoiled food in your refrigerator, right? Like that's okay if you're a bureaucrat in Washington making you know six figures on the public charge, but if you're a low income household, like the one I grew up in, a blackout is a big deal. Like if you're, all the food in your fridge goes bad, um, that's, that's no good. You know, we, we modeled, um, I'll get into some of the assumptions in a second here, but, uh, we modeled big blackouts in the MISO region and some of them happen in January, which I guess like Wisconsin or Minnesota is a giant deep freezer during those times. So maybe your food doesn't spoil. Uh, but you know, you're also not going to be, uh, having heat during those periods. So, um, just kind of stepping back, getting back to your question here. Uh, EPA distinguishes between resource adequacy and reliability, right? So I don't know if your listeners are super familiar with the resource planning process, right? Um, no, let's let's go into that a little bit because we don't yeah. do a ton on electricity issues, and and when we do, it's kind of at a high scale. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah, let's let's dig into the weeds here a little bit. So let's just say you've got a 10-foot bar that you need to clear, right? You need to touch this bar in order to feel like you have enough electricity to, um, you know, 
meet your meet your de- your demand and then plus a margin of safety. And let's just say you've got like one pound block or one foot blocks that you're going to be stacking up in order to meet this. And I understand the analogy is a little tortured, but uh, it just helps to conceptualize what's happening here. So you need to be stacking these blocks up in order to meet that 10 foot bar. And essentially what happens is when grid planners, whether that's mid-continent independent systems operator like MISO or PJM or you know even EPA, when they're doing this stuff, they're taking uh, they're they're basically assigning a reliability value to each resource, and then they're stacking those reliability values on top of themselves until they meet this bar, right? They meet their peak demand plus a reserve margin. So uh, what normally happens is thermal resources like coal, nuclear, natural gas are given high accreditations, generally 90%, right? So uh, for every you know 10 megawatts or 10 blocks of nuclear that you build, right, you get nine that actually you know show up on that that stack. So, uh, but when it comes to wind and solar, it's a lot more difficult to actually measure how much electricity those generating resources are going to be producing at any given moment because it's dependent on the weather, right? Like I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin and I can tell everybody like the worst part about being a farmer isn't like the hard work, right? You can deal with that. It's knowing that your livelihood depends on the weather and that's completely outside of your control. Like that is, I don't know how many times like I heard my parents and my grandparents say, man, we could really use a rain right now. So uh, essentially, what EPA is doing is they are they're committing this kind of twin sin, in my opinion, of relying on wind and solar blocks, right, to meet that you know ten foot goal, right. So they're saying, well, we're going to rely on wind and solar to meet a certain amount of demand, right, which I think is a mistake. You should always have enough dispatchable capacity in order to meet your peak demand plus your reserve margin. So EPA is is doing that, and they're also overestimating the reliability of wind and solar while they're doing that, right? So uh, essentially, uh, EPA is trying to satisfy their own resource adequacy um, requirements on paper, but those don't have any real reflection for what wind and solar are going to produce at times uh, during the the real world, right? So um, yeah, if you guys have any questions, feel free to jump in. Um, it really feels like they're just retconning these numbers. Like they said, they, they took a look at what they needed to have, and that they then they said wind and solar would be that. Um, and I think you have, you you use the term in the paper that I, or in the comment that I really like, um, where you called them phantom firm resources. Yep. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, uh, a resource accreditation or a capacity value, it's, it, these terms are used interchangeably in the um, the nerd world of energy planning policy, right? And uh, essentially what that is, it is a percentage value for how reliable you think a, a resource will be at any given moment. And EPA assumes that uh, existing wind turbines will be, you know, 19% reliable during uh periods of peak electricity demand and existing solar will be 55% reliable, right? So if we're talking about those blocks, right? So take, you know, 19% of that one foot block, stack four of those up, and then you've got, uh, you know, one foot according to EPA. But, you know, the problem with that is we observe in our modeling uh, periods of time in MISO, just historically, this is just what has already happened uh, where wind is operating below one and a half percent of its potential output for 42 consecutive hours. So, 
you know, okay, multiply one by uh, 1.5% and like you've basically got zero. So you have all of this wind capacity that's essentially uh, not doing anything during periods of time when you might need it most. So in solar can be very similar. Uh, we have big concerns about using accreditation capacities for solar. You've got like the, the duck curve has now become the canyon curve. Yeah. And uh, also like in areas where you have winter peaking systems like the south, right? Uh, the the cold the, the largest electricity demand is going to be when it's cold at night. And I'm sorry, but your solar panels are going to have a capacity value of zero during those periods of time. So, um, you know, we have not looked at other regions of the country in terms of what EPA expects for capacity value. But based on what we saw in our modeling in MISO, we feel that, you know, there's a chance that uh, EPA is kind of making these same category errors, right? They're, they think that wind and solar will be available when they actually won't be available. It's the phantom firm right there. Um, so that leaves the entire country susceptible to these capacity shortfalls. Yeah, yeah. these, these yeah, things seem to be like um, the the misplace, uh, I guess, trust in wind and solar showing up seems to be sort of like a systematic bias across energy policy because we see the same problem play out in sort of like the levelized cost battles too, right? Where people are making assumptions about um, about the capacity factors of, of wind and solar. Uh, uh, they're being over-optimistic, I guess, there too. Yeah, I mean, those are a little different, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, a wind and solar LCOE, levelized cost of energy, like those are always using kind of the most optimistic capacity factor scenarios available when, you know, realistically, that's going to vary a lot geographically. Um, and also like, pardon me, as your as your system becomes more reliant on wind and solar, you actually have to overbuild and curtail the resources in order to keep from overloading the grid, right? So battery storage is so prohibitively expensive that it's actually like too expensive to build enough storage to like store the electricity um, uh, generated by wind and solar on a seasonal basis. So the smart people over at Princeton's, uh, you know, Jesse Jenkins type folks, they say, no, we'll just overbuild the grid with wind and solar and we'll shut those wind turbines and solar panels off when we don't need the power because wasting the, those resources or curtailing that energy is actually cheaper than building the storage. So when you're looking at the levelized cost of energy, Mitch Rowling and I, he's my, my partner in crime over here at American Experiment, you have to evaluate the, the levelized cost of energy based on what that resource might actually be producing in a system, right? So um, that's why we have, you know, long, you know, tried to find a an alternative to that. And we have, like, we, we did some modeling on the cost of a 100% carbon-free electricity mandate in Minnesota. And we found that once you take into account all this overbuilding and curtailment, the, the cost to serve load, right? Like, we have to think about uh, the... Um, LCOE, not in terms of how much can one asset produce electricity for, but how much does it cost to reliably meet one megawatt hour of load? Uh, and when you do that and think about it in terms of, okay, okay, what kind of value is this asset contributing to the system? Uh, wind was like $272 a megawatt hour and uh, solar was like 372 I mean, it gets very expensive very quickly because you have curtailment rates of like 70% in these super high uh, renewable energy uh, penetration systems. 
Yeah. Um, so before that part, I was just going to say that it just seems it's so intuitive what you said. Like, of course, the percentage of the time that wind isn't working is going to be the same percentage of the time. Of course, the percentage of the time that solar isn't working is going to be the same percentage of the time because it, it's not it's not the same as with the thermal sources where it's about the individual plant and what's going on within the plant, you know, yes. where outages caused because you're refueling a nuclear plant or because um, there's a shortage of um, LNG to a particular plant or something. The shortage is that the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. And that tends to be mostly across the state or across the grid pretty similar, especially when it comes to the time that the sun's not shining. We can kind of predict when that's going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty effectively. And that's that's going to be the same part of the time. So to be able to say like, oh, we'll just stack the 55% of the time that this works on the other 55% of the time, like part of that time's at night. <laughs> it's just, yes. the, just the logic doesn't, it, it's kind of insane that it got to that point. It is, it is, yeah. right? And that's why we saw massive blackouts in our modeling, right? So we have these phantom firm resources on the grid. There's not enough natural gas capacity and we are using EPA's own assumptions, right? So um, we we made some uh, other assumptions that we felt were generous to EPA in terms of how many load modifying resources they could use, right? So for the listeners at home, uh, a load modifying resource or a LMR is basically the opposite of Motel 6. They turn the lights off on you. Um, so large industrial consumers of electricity during times of grid stress are often asked to scale back production or use less electricity uh, because that helps keep the grid solvent. And as a you know trade-off for that, they're generally offered lower electricity rates in order to uh, have these so-called interruptible contracts, right? So we have this a lot in Minnesota. We've got iron mines and paper mills up in the northern part of the state. They use about 8% of the electricity uh, consumed on an annual basis. So when the grid conditions get tight, they'll phone up the iron mine and they'll say, hey, can you guys idle a line of production? We really need this power right now, right? So we, we assumed a lot of those because uh, EPA didn't have any of that in their modeling. So we just kind of gave them that because a lot of people use that, you know, in their integrated resource plan, stuff like that. So we gave them a gimme there. Uh, we also said you could use that as much as you want, even though there are often limitations on how frequently you can, you know, brown people out or, uh, you know, how many times you can do that over the course of a year. So we just said, okay, EPA, right. take this generous assumption. And then we used the current level of interregional imports for MISO from like PJM will send them power. So uh, despite those kind of generous uh, assumptions, EPA's own grid can't keep up with hindcasted weather conditions and demand. So, uh, you know, uh, what was it? Yogi Berra said predictions are tough, especially about the future. So uh, that, and he said, give me your pick and nick basket. I think that's that's the way things, things worked out. But so what we decided to do was we wanted to stress test EPA's assumptions. We said, okay, let's take EPA's grid in each year that they've modeled moving forward from 2028 through 2050. And let's just see if this grid could meet demand for all hours of the year based on historical hourly electricity demand. You can go to EIA's hourly grid monitor and you can see the little fluctuations day to day in electricity demand. And then you can also see fluctuations in wind and solar electricity generation. So what we did was we said, we, okay, let's find the capacity factor of wind and solar on an hourly basis and see if all the wind turbines and all the solar panels on EPA's grid could meet demand along with those natural gas plants that they have. 
Uh, so all the king's horses, all the king's men can't meet electricity demand for a lot, for hundreds of hours based on our assumption. So we did this for, you know, based on 2019 electricity demand, wind and solar output all the way through 2022. So we looked at four years of data in none of those historical comparison years is what we call them. Can EPA's grid always meet demand? There's going to be a blackout no matter what weather year you use, which means this is probably not a very good system that <laughs> EPA has constructed here. So uh, some of these blackouts are massive. Uh, one in like January 2040, if you're using, I think it's 2021, weather data would result in 26,000 megawatts of capacity shortfall, which is enough to black out the entire state of Wisconsin and Minnesota at the same time. And I know you East Coast elitists don't understand what that means. Uh, but no, as I someone... do. I'm from Michigan. I was I was there for the, the 2003 blackout. I know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're one of the good ones yeah. then, Alex. <laughs> yeah. um... I've lived in plenty of cold places and I'm from Pennsylvania. <laughs> so totally understand the, uh, you know, when the power lines go down for a, a week or so and everyone pulls out their very loud generators to try yeah. to do something about it. And, you know, there's just, there's not much you can do in the winter when that happens. Exactly. You can't turn the wind turbines up, even though I, I like to ask people to do that on Twitter as a joke. Um, so, yeah, we have this essentially this this system that is so unreliable that it is not a good basis for determining the actual cost of the rules. Right. So uh, and I, I just want to jump back a little bit and talk about why this system is so bad. Right. Why is EPA's modeled grid so unreliable? And it's because EPA is using kind of a BS baseline tactic in order to hide the cost of these rules and avoid talking about um, the reliability challenges that go into it. Right. So U.S. Chamber of Commerce came out with a pretty good study uh, a month and a half ago, maybe a month yeah, ago now. That. Dan Byers and his team uh, did super good work and they identified that EPA assumed 99% of the emissions reductions that were occurring uh, as a result of these regulations weren't actually due to the regulations. They were due to the assumed changes in the resource mix as a result of the subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act, right? So EPA's baseline analysis is the post-IRA baseline, and they assume almost all of the changes to the grid are due to those subsidies, and the last little 1% of emissions reductions are due to the uh, carbon pollution standard regulations, right? So then EPA says, okay, well, you know, uh, we think that our regulation will result in the closure of an additional 22 megawatts or gigawatts rather of coal plants. So let's add 23 gigawatts of natural gas in order to make this regulation look like it makes sense on paper, right? But they never looked at the resource adequacy or reliability of their base case. They, they say this in their technical support document. And I know we're getting very jargon heavy here for the normies who are listening to this uh, energy podcast, but essentially EPA has to justify whatever they do in their regulation. It's a long document uh, called a regulatory impact analysis. And uh, the thing is, they just admit that they totally just said, yay, you know, we hope that the, the base of this is uh, reliable. So in our comments, I said, this is the exact same thing as EPA making sure that the structural integrity of the top floor of a uh, 100 story building is, you know, good. It, it's up to code without doing that for the preceding 99 floors. And that's essentially, that's exactly what EPA has done. And that's why we have such a horribly unreliable grid. But 
EPA pretends that they've done their homework on it. While we're talking about the um, reliability impacts of not taking things into account in this rulemaking, let's talk about the tailpipe rule as well. Um, that happened at the same time, and they're not acknowledging that one rule will have significant impacts on electricity demand by phasing out a bunch of ICE vehicles and bringing new EVs onto the grid, while at the same time, the other one will be phasing out reliable supply. And those rules just don't acknowledge each other in any of their documentation, um, which just seems absolutely out of bounds to me. Do you have any insights there? Yeah, I mean, that's it, right? So, I mean, we've we've done some analysis in Colorado that looks at hourly electricity consumption for EV charging. Uh, we just kind of uh, looked around the, the world basically and said, okay, what are the EV charging patterns that people have? And a lot of times people are charging from, you know, five or 6 p.m. until two or 3 p.m. and, or sorry, two or 3 a.m., right? Like they're charging overnight. So they're adding in kind of this big load. And it's interesting, now California is saying, actually don't charge your EV at night because that's when we're, you know, imploring people not to run their air conditioners or, you know, charge, use your dishwasher and stuff in the summertime because it's too hot. Actually, charge it in the middle of the day when the sun is shiniest, right? So people all are notoriously home. Yeah. Yes. People are, <laughs> yes, especially the working class, right? Like I'm your single home. mother who is raising kids isn't at work at some place that certainly doesn't have enough EV chargers for their employees, right? Uh, good luck buying one at that you know, First in those one, circumstances yeah. anyway, right? So like, that's what drives me nuts about all of this stuff. Like I grew up in a family where we did not have a lot of money and all of this nonsense is being pushed by people with more money than sense. And um, really frustrating. I know that was kind of a tangent, but uh, I think that that's, that's important because those are the people we're fighting for, right? Like that's that's it. Yeah, absolutely. I, you, you know, I mean, uh, the the thing that really is annoying is that they they claim to be doing this in, in the name of environmental justice, which then br you know brings in a connotation of well the the reason why they want to do this is to help the people who might be uh, in struggling circumstances and stuff, and they kind of cloak all of it in that that sort sort of uh, we're we're doing this to help the poor, and uh, it it can be very frustrating at times to to say no. Just look at the unintended consequences of what you're doing. It, it, it's quite quite the opposite, actually. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like Team America after they get done blowing up the Louvre and the yeah. Eiffel Tower, and they're like, we did it, guys! <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, at, at the end of your comments, you, uh, you give some uh, recommendations about how EPA should proceed in terms of mm -hmm. reexamining their modeling and stuff. Do you want to talk about that at all, or...? Yeah, sure. Let's hit that. I'll yeah. talk about cost a little bit too, because okay. um, yeah. we haven't really hit that yet. Yeah, so yeah. essentially what we said in our comments is EPA's model is so unreliable that it is not a realistic basis for evaluating how much this rule is actually going to cost, right? So we said, what if you built enough additional capacity, so wind, solar, battery storage, natural gas plants, to prevent the blackouts and still meet the Biden administration's modeled emissions reduction in their own, you know, bizarro world, uh, uh, EPA model, right? So we found that that would cost an additional $246 billion through 2055, which is seven and or $7.7 billion annually. So what does that mean for real people? That means electricity prices go up by about 32%. 
um, which is a lot because yeah. EPA is actually projecting that electricity prices will go down in the future as a result of this rule somehow, right? So we're going to spend uh, hundreds of billions of dollars on wind turbine, solar panels, what have you, but somehow electricity prices will be less. Uh, that was a, that was an interesting um, finding on their part. But the 7.7 billion is interesting because EPA only estimates that the whole net benefits for the whole country will be $5.9 billion. So we found in one little area, just our little small neck of the woods here in MISO with 45 million people, that uh, the cost of complying with these regulations is actually more than the total expected benefits. So, you know, ultimately, EPA's got to run a reliability analysis. The fact that they don't do that at all for any of their scenarios is mind blowing because this is like, fundamental transformation of the grid type stuff and they're using a process that's less transparent and less rigorous than like a state integrated resource plan for a utility it's totally um it's bonkers it, it just and then like we're gonna have what 60 or 75 days to talk about this as a society and then we're gonna get into like we're reviewing comments and might issue a final one like yeah a final rule like no this needs to be a lot more involved that this is the direction that they're going to take us so that's that's basically what we said you need to start using more realistic resource accreditations for wind and solar that's super in the weeds but at the end of the day we said look you need to have enough capacity on your grid in order to meet your peak demand so you don't have these blackouts and uh that's uh hopefully epa listens to everything that we said and uh fixes this but uh we'll see time will tell I think it's important, you know, you know uh, we pointed out, or you pointed out, I guess, uh, the Chamber of Commerce has pushed back on this. There's a few other groups, too. Um, I think some of the grid operators have, have raised concerns about this, too. Um, the, the, the last question I, I wanted to pose to both of you guys, I guess, is, you know, a lot of times when it comes to energy stuff, sort of everyday people have a tough time, A, sorting out all the complexity of this stuff, because it, it's, you, you know, you're talking about engineering problems, you're talking about economic problems and the politics of it all. It's all very complicated. Everyday people who are concerned about this stuff, what can they do to push back? Because I get questions all the time, you know, uh, what, what can I be doing about this? Well, Paige, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, r r like writing, um, you know, comments can help the, you know, the form comments you can do through organizations like AEA, and I'm sure you guys do them at American Experiment too, um, that can that can help, you know, uh, at the end of the day, like just learning as much as you can about the issues so that you know how to push back on them. Um, but it, it, it can be hard to, to push back on these issues. That, yeah, you know, exactly. This is a rulemaking that comes along with a 350 pages of documentation and the rule itself is, like a hundred pages long or something. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not going to tell you to go read the whole rule. Like that's insane. Um, I'd say, you know, read a couple of articles on it to maybe understand what's going on and then try to vote for people who will put forward policies that'll help you. Like there's not a lot of super tangible things you can do unless you're in a position to read and respond to the rule on a granular level. And nobody has that, right? And I no. asked, I threw that no, question your way just to kind of illustrate how kind of this rule by swamp 
happens, right? So like the administrative state, you know, people talk about draining the swamp and all that kind of stuff. This is what they're talking about, right? They're talking about unelected bureaucrats in Washington having the power to write rules that have the effect of laws. And, you know, we have very little recourse as an individual. And, you know, the three of us, we're nerds and we do this stuff for a living. Like you can't expect somebody else who's got a busy schedule with work and family life to, you know, feel like they've got a handle on these regulations in any any way that makes sense, right? Like that's that's the problem with what we have right now. We've got our rules being written by people that aren't elected. And uh, one of the things that we would like to do is see members of Congress push back more on this. So maybe, uh, you know, if you are looking for something that you can do as a listener, write your write your members of Congress and say, hey, you know, uh, what are you guys doing to look into this and kind of have EPA. The you know the the other thing that I'd like to just kind of touch on here is EPA uses a model called the integrated planning model that's a black box, right? Like when we went to EPA and said, "Hey, we'd like to look at your model." Well, first off, they never got back to us, uh but we did talk to people like Dan Byers over at the chamber and he said, "Well, actually, that's a proprietary model. You don't get to look inside of it. You only get to see what their outputs are. They'll they'll put a spreadsheet on the internet and they'll say, "This is what we found. Here are the results, but you need to essentially reverse engineer it in order to run your own modeling," which is what we did. Um but that is totally bonkers to yeah. me that it's, a public yeah. agency can use a black box model that you do not get access to. Um, and we asked them for information multiple times on, hey, how do we how do we get more information about this? Can you, you know, have your you know consulting firm that does all this modeling for you get us this information, this information, and this information? And we never even heard back from EPA. So we need members of Congress to grill the agency on, hey, some of these assumptions aren't very good, but also why is this like such an opaque process? What what could be secret in there for a good reason? Like, the you know, the, the electricity output data is already borderline real time available from EIA. That would be the only thing that would even like, there's nothing there that's proprietary in a way that endangers anything or should be really a secret. So it's it's clearly there just to obfuscate the process and to make it so people can't tell what's going on. And it's really hard to, you know, address concerns to a model when you can't get specific enough because you don't have access to what they did in the model. Uh, I mean, you guys have done an incredible job of reverse engineering it and building your own, but that's an incredible length to have to go to to be able to argue against something. And that's exactly right. So. Um, I mean, I guess that would be that's, that's probably something we should have put in our comments as a recommendation. Uh, and I don't know if we did or not, but, you know, that would be my hope. I'm hoping that the, you know, the comments that we generated, you know, kind of stimulate a conversation like, look, we need an open and transparent process. We need to use realistic, uh, you know, reliability assessments. We need to actually do a reliability assessment and we need to make sure that we're not including wind and solar in these capacity stacks with these these phantom firm resources that we talked about. Yeah, I think those are all good points that you guys are making. Uh, it's underrated how much of an effect I think calling your congressman or writing them a writing them a letter can have because they usually don't really hear from anybody on anything. So if they get ten letters on something from constituents, it it even that little amount it it gets their attention. So um, so yeah, I think that that's good advice. And 
the uh, the transparency stuff with the modeling and stuff. I know during the Trump administration, our former um, head economist, David Kreutzer, was kind of enmeshed in the battles of trying to make the climate modeling and stuff more transparent. There's a similar issue there. Um, huge problems in the regulatory state. Uh, glad that we have people like you guys working on bringing these things to uh, the public's attention. Um, Isaac, if uh, I want to give you one last chance to just anything we haven't covered on this um, that you think is worth saying. And then I want you to talk a little bit about the center of the American experiment too. just give a quick pitch and where people can find your guys' work there, because you guys do great stuff, not just on uh, energy and environmental issues, but I know uh, a lot of other topics as, as well. You know, I think we we covered most of it. It's just EPA is projecting, they're they're assuring the public, hey, uh, we have, we've carefully considered the impact on resource adequacy and reliability for these rules, but EPA's modeled grid can't even project or can't even hindcast, right? Uh, can't keep the grid reliable using historical data. Therefore, I don't think that that gives us much confidence that they're going to be able to reliably predict the future. So that would be that would be my main takeaway, right? So uh, EPA's got to go back to the drawing board, reevaluate its modeling, give us realistic cost estimates, and then let's have a conversation about that. Uh, if you want to learn more about American Experiment, you go to AmericanExperiment.org. Uh, we do cover a lot of issues. We've got a public safety fellow. We've got two economists on staff that do a lot of work on, you know, not just Minnesota's economy, but the regional economy, uh, education, that sort of stuff. We're kind of just this uh, traditional state-based think tank that developed an expertise in energy that is, you know, gladly it's become useful for folks outside of uh, the Midwest. Great. Our guest today has been Isaac Orr from Center of the American Experiment. Isaac, thank you for your time today. Well, thanks for having me.